This is episode number 368 with Ray Dalio of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Seth Goes, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Barbara Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hey guys, Nathan here. Welcome back to another episode. Uh, Today's guest, legendary Ray Dalio, uh, billionaire investor, hedge fund manager. Uh, He, you know, he's a co-chief investment officer of the world's largest hedge fund, Bridgewater Associates. Um, they r- roughly manage over $150 billion. Um, so yeah, Ray, he's one of the richest people in the world. And uh, he's really going to break down for you like the billion dollar blueprint and all of the key principles that like, he's got many and you've got to check out his book principles. But we really go through some of his key ones that really interest me. And just, we talk about life. We talk about everything that you need to know when it comes to like his story, how he got started, the inspiration behind his book, like what losing everything and hitting rock bottom looks like, his decision-making frameworks that, you know, has has really held him in incredible stead. Um, you know, the ideal composition of a founding team, how he actually manages burnout and yeah, really like Reddit, Robinhood, cryptocurrency, uh, and all of that and so much more. So I enjoyed this interview so much. It's one of my personal favorites. Ray was very generous with his time. I hope you enjoy this one. This guy is a living legend. A lot of people uh, listen when he speaks. And I just feel really privileged to be able to have this incredible conversation with him and share that with you guys. And if you are enjoying this podcast, please do leave us a review wherever you're listening and share it with two or three friends, like anyone that wants to start a business or just trying to grow a business. We're trying to build one of the largest online educational platforms in the world and democratize entrepreneurial education at Founder. And, you know, we do everything just to serve you. So all I ask, this is free. 
this podcast. We spend so much time and effort. Tons of different staff members have their hand in producing these podcasts. Like just please share it with a couple of friends. It would help more than you can imagine. All right, guys, that's it from me. Now let's jump into the show. So um, the first question I ask everyone that comes on is, uh, how did you get your job, aka how did you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? When I was a kid, I uh, did odd jobs. I caddied, I mowed lawns and so on. And uh, when I was 12, I put the money I earned into the stock market. I don't know. I think maybe it was $50 or $100 or something at first. And the first stock I bought was the only company I ever heard of that was selling for less than $5 a share. And I figured I can buy more shares. So if it goes up, I'd make more money. And so I bought this company. It was about to go bankrupt, but somebody acquired it. It tripled and I was hooked. So that started me when I was 12. And ever since then, I've been playing the game one way or another. Yeah, amazing. And so I'm curious, um, when did you start like working on Wall Street? I graduated college and between college and business school, I clerked on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. That was in 1971. That was really the heart of Wall Street. I mean, it was literally on Wall Street, the New York Stock Exchange, behind a specialist booth. And um, But I, I played the market a long time up until then. And then I had great experiences that looped me in. I was on the floor of the Stock Exchange when on August 15th, 1971, Nixon ended the monetary system as we know it. Basically, back then, dollars could be turned in for gold. And because we were running out of gold, because we printed too much money, because we had too much debt, on August 15th, he basically said, money as we know it won't exist, went on the floor of the stock exchange. I thought that we were going to have a big crisis and the stock market be down a lot. I couldn't have been more wrong. The stock market shot up. I wondered why. And I studied history and found out that Roosevelt did the same thing on March 5th, 1933. And I understood why. And that's very similar to what's going on now. So anyway, it was my first go at it was in the summer of 1971. Hmm, I see. And um, can you tell us about like uh, when you punched your boss in the face and which led you to start like Bridgewater? My first job on Wall Street after that summer job was the next year. And I um, worked at Director of Commodities as an assistant to the Director of Commodities at Merrill Lynch. And then when I got out of business school, I was offered the job to be director of commodities at a brokerage house. And I ended up being at Shearson Hayden Stone in charge of institutional commodities. I'm in hedging by institutions. And well, the upshot of it was I was kind of rambunctious. And my uh, boss and I, who's a good guy, uh, we got um, we got pretty drunk on New Year's Eve. And um, I don't know, we got into a little thing and I and I decked him. He told me he came in the next time he he, he came in and he uh, he said um, that after that, he went home. He totaled his car on the way home. His wife chewed him out because he didn't make the New Year's Eve party. And but he came in and and, and he didn't fire me, but I was fired for 
somewhat rowdy activities. And then I started Bridgewater in 1975. And when I say started Bridgewater, basically I had a two bedroom apartment. A pal of mine and I went to uh, business school, lived in one bedroom, I lived in the other. Um, he moved out, investors, institutional investors, would still pay me money for advice. So I continued to trade the markets and um, and they would pay me money. And it was out of this two bedroom apartment with a friend I played rugby with and somebody else who, who helped us as an assistant. And that's how uh, Bridgewater began. Yeah, crazy. So humble beginnings. So uh, what happened next? When I say humble beginnings, you know, it was the American dream. It was a middle-class family. My dad was a musician. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. I, but I had two parents who loved me and took care of me. I went to a public school uh, that was a good school, and I came out to a world of equal opportunity. And that's really pretty much all that anyone needs. And we have a problem. A lot of people are not getting that nowadays. But um, that's all you really need. So what happened next? after you launched Bridgewater out of uh, your apartment? You know, sort of managed some monies, mostly corporate risks uh, for hedging and so on. And then I uh, built up a, a small team, like 10 people, and I was having a good life. And then in 1980-81, which is when inflation was accelerating, Paul Volcker was elected Helmut Schmidt, the chancellor of Germany, said the highest level of interest rates since Jesus Christ, and type money, they created this problem. I analyzed it and found that American banks had lent much more money to emerging countries than those countries were going to pay back. I got a lot of attention for this very controversial point of view. And then in August 1982, Mexico defaulted on its debt, a number of countries followed, and I thought we were going to go into a big debt crisis, and I couldn't have been more wrong. That's because the Federal Reserve eased a lot of monetary policy, printed a lot of money, and created a bull market. That was to the exact bottom in the stock market, August 1982. And that experience was a painful experience, super painful. I've got a lot of attention, not only for being wrong, but also I uh, lost money for me. I lost money for my clients. I had to let uh, everybody go. I had to, was faced with the decision, would I each morning put on a tie and get on the train and commute to New York to work on Wall Street or would I try to make it? And I did. Um, I was so broke, um, I had to borrow $4,000 from my dad to help take care of my family. But it was the best experiences. It was one of the most painful, but one of, was one of the best experiences I happened to me because it gave me the humility I needed to deal with my audacity. It made me think, how do I know I'm right? So I wanted to have great upside, but I had, knew I had to deal with the downside. So that gave me an open-mindedness. I wanted to find the smartest people I could find who disagreed with me so I could understand their reasoning. I, I learned how I could reduce risks in the markets without reducing uh, returns by diversifying well and so on. And that was you know, the beginning, really, of Bridgewater's uh, success. Bridgewater was, and still is, an idea meritocracy 
That means the best ideas win out. They don't have to come from me. So an idea meritocracy in which the goals are excellence at work and excellence at relationship. And we do that through radical truthfulness and radical transparency. So that big punch in the face um, did me a lot of good. Yeah, I love it. So you read the, you, you wrote this incredible book called Principles and uh, it is a game-changing book where you basically have documented all of your lessons on all of your failures, all these decisions. And it's basically like a, a compass for making incredible decisions um, on all sorts of things that happen to you in life, business. And um, I'd love to know, one of your principles is called struggle well. And I think when you do experience adversity, like extreme adversity, like you did, which you called, you called this, you know, in 1982, this is your greatest failure. And it's also one of, you say, it's one of your greatest lessons. What can people learn from this that are listening right now? Like, do you believe that if you want to achieve any success in business and life, you need to cop like a really big hit, like extreme adversity? Yeah, I'm, uh, you've asked a number of things in that question, so I'm going to take a little bit by bit by bit. What I found that I would recommend to everybody is an expression, pain plus reflection equals progress. What I reflected on every time I would make decisions, and I wanted to communicate with everybody in my company, so I let them see all this decision-making on video, I would also pause and I would reflect and I would write down what I thought. So these principles, by which I mean, when something comes along, how do you deal with it? Those principles were accumulated one by one over, I don't know, 25 or 30 years. And then when I passed along the CEO job, I put together that book because I wanted to pass those along to other people. But I'd recommend people, when they encounter things, realize that everything that's happened has probably happened to other people and has happened many times in history and probably will happen them again. And the key is to learn the lessons. And if you can sort of, you know, reality's reality, you have to deal with it. Don't go, woe is me. You have to think about it. And then you have to write that down. And okay, so that was one thing I want to get across. As far as struggle well, you're going to have struggles. You're going to go to your goal and you're going to have struggles, and you're going to make mistakes. Nobody skates through life, particularly if you want to have a great life, you have to do it well. So these principles are like recipes. You know, if this happens, you do that. But in order to struggle well, you have to realize that the best lessons come from the mistakes. If you're dealing with something where it's a painful result, and you reflect on it with an objectivity, and you know, think, how could I help that uh, handle that better? Even ask people, what could I have done better? How do I deal with it next time it comes along? Or what does it tell me about how reality works that I have to accept? When you do that, it helps you struggle. It, struggling is in ideas and getting ahead in life is just like struggling in the gym. I mean, it gets you stronger. No pain, no gain. So if you can't struggle well, you won't stop the bad things coming at you. You're just going to be weaker. And when you're weaker, you're going to be less successful. So there really is no choice other than to struggle well. And what I mean by struggle well is to know what your strengths and weaknesses are, 
to work with people who are strong where you're weak and to be able to view mistakes as learning processes. Every mistake is like a puzzle. And if I can solve the puzzle, I'll get a gem. And the puzzle is, what would I do differently in the future? And the gem is a principle for dealing it with better in the future. And that's what personal growth is all about. And if you do it well, you'll have more success. I'm really curious. You talked about finding people that complement your weaknesses. And people watching right now, uh, you know, might be in the early stages of their business. I'm curious to talk to you around kind of the ideal composition of a founding team. Like when you, like you talk about um, in your book, the, the baseball cards tool that you use and the personalities and matching them up. Do you have an ideal composition of founding team or finding people that complement your weaknesses? First of all, if you're founding a company, you have to be able to think differently. You're, you're doing something that isn't done before and you're not following the instructions the way it would work if you're working at a regular job. So there has to be kind of a shaper personality, somebody who has visualization, can turn visualization into actualization. And that's not just imagination, but practicality. And then that type of person probably isn't good with details. So you need to find out, well, what is the strength And then what is the corresponding weakness? Find out that person who shares the mission, but is almost, well, makes up for what you have in the form of weaknesses. I've found that personality profile tests were great, and I've just created a personality profile test, which we call Principles U, that'll make it available for everybody so that they can know their nature. Where is their pull? How do they see things differently than somebody else. And then they could play that role. But you're always going to need that yin and yang between that imaginative person and then that other person. Then you'll bring in starts of skill sets. There has to be a subject matter expert. There has to be, and then you get into it. Who's the money guy? Who's the, um, I don't know, is there a legal and compliance piece of this? You know, how does those pieces come in? There are three things that every person has, three ways of looking at a person, and that is values, abilities, and skills. Most people make the mistake of hiring for skills. Skills are important, but they're least important. Most important thing is hire for values. You know, the issue like, are you on the mission with me? Do you have good character? Is this the type of person you want to be with? Then you go to abilities, next most important. Like, how do you think? Not what skills have you acquired? And then you get into the skill domain, and it's putting that team together and then appreciating people who think differently from you. This is a big thing. I discovered this, oh, I don't know, maybe 25 or 30 years ago. I gave everybody in the company, this is when I now had a bigger company. So I had probably a thousand or uh, 1500 people or something like that. And I gave uh, the top 150 managers the Myers-Briggs test to try to see how they they think differently. And um, I read it and I was 
shocked because in many cases, I didn't believe people actually thought that way. There were such different ways of thinking, but I asked them to rate it on a scale of one to five. And over 85% of them rated it a four and a five of describing them. And I wouldn't have known that. Now, before that, there were uh, these different ways of thinking kind of annoyed people, like the big picture thinker uh, dealing with the detail thinker. The big picture thinker would get annoyed at the detail thinker because they'd say, well, what do you keep getting tripped up in those details? And the detail thinker would say, uh, you know, you have the head in the clouds. You have to take care of all these things. Otherwise, you're not going to go anywhere. And they sort of frustrated each other until they knew how they thought differently and how they could help each other. So I've created this personality profile principles you test that I make it available for everybody for free, which is the best test um, in existence because I put the best uh, psychometricians together to do it that way. And I'm making it free because it allows people to understand themselves. It allows people to understand each other and then form those teams that way. And then you have to match up the skills. Every group of people needs that. The other thing they need is clear ground rules of how they deal with each other. Any relationship. It's not just starting a business. If you have partners, if you're married or if whatever, what do I expect? You're going to be with me and I'm going to be with you. And that creates the culture of the organization. So when your audience, who I love speaking with because they're in the early stages of this journey, that's why I'm speaking with you. When they are starting off and they're doing that, they have to be thinking about, okay, there's that achieve that success and build that team. And then they have to think of the arc. So I would say these tests and tools I've put together, which I'm also making available for free. They're the things that have helped me. I'd love to hear about decision-making frameworks. So you've done an incredible job with all the different tools you've built within your organization and also just this idea of finding the best people in the room and, and challenging each other and that's how you, you keep getting better and that's how you've been able to be so successful that you talk about a lot in the book around this idea of decision-making frameworks. I'm curious, how can others work on refining their decision-making frameworks? Because it's, it's about, like, it's, it's about be, being right. You don't have to be right all the time, but being right as much as possible. On that last point, realize uh, that being right doesn't have to come from you. And that, in fact, the probability of you being right on everything all the time, like a lot of people think they should be, uh, that's just dumb. So um, I would say first thing is get the best answers from wherever the best answers can come from. And that going back and forth helps to do that. And also humility helps to do that. And it also fuels curiosity. Questions will get you a lot farther than answers. But in answer to your question of uh, systemizing decision-making, it starts with writing down your rules, your, your criteria. If you start to realize that most people are kind of in a blizzard of things that come at them and they're responding to them and they're not reflecting uh, like a ninja, that if instead they're thinking, how do I respond to that thing? How do I respond? 
even if it's not in the moment, but in other words, the moment passes and you reflect on it and you write it down, when this comes along, do this. And that starts to make you intellectualize rather than just respond. And it can go a lot farther. I found that we could put those rules into algorithms that would help us make decisions. And um, also, you would understand each other by writing down these principles. Uh, everybody in your company can explore, well, how would you handle that thing and why? And so it creates a culture that's, that's fantastic to be able to know how should we be with each other. And it's, it leads to the systemization of that. So that book, Principles, that, that you said is really the collection of mine. I've created an app that's available for everybody for free. It's called Principles in Action. It's available on the Apple Store for Apple devices, and it's also available you know, on other devices. And um, if you download that in it, there is an app in that Principles in Action app that we call a coach. And what happens is you ask the coach, how would you handle this thing? And it gets you to the right principles. Now, that gets people thinking about principles, but they don't have to agree with that principle. They can change that principle. They can write down that principle. But the idea of being able to think at a principled level with principles changes the way of thinking and allows coordination. And so it's like when you're encountering something and everything seems like another one of those, you ask yourself, okay, like encountering a species, you say, what species of thing is it? And how should I deal with that species? That teaches principle thinking. So I would encourage people to do that. And that app there allows you to write down your own principles and in that format and it makes you think better. It makes you understand better. It helps you build a culture. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a ton. As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business and you want to hear from some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I who are actually in the trenches, only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like that are building right now and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success. You should come and check out our new podcast from Zero to Founder, hosted by our community manager, Molly Flynn. These are in the trenches stories from our very own successful students that have gone through some of our programs. People just like you who are deep within the process of building their very own successful business. These are the founders of tomorrow. You can find the From Zero to Founder podcast on all platforms. And remember, it's founder without the E. All right, now let's jump in the show. Definitely after reading the book, you you have inspired me to want to build upon my own principles uh, in business and life because it's painful making the same mistake twice, right? You know, if you only make it twice, that's success. But it, it really depends on how many times it, it's going to take to get you through your thick skull. And uh, it, and I think that what happens when, once you start to realize that it doesn't all have to come from you, then a powers generate. The greatest problem of mankind, I believe, this is a biggest statement, the greatest problem of mankind, the greatest tragedy of mankind is individuals 
who are attached to their opinions that are wrong. And they so easily could stress test those opinions or get a better opinion and make a much better decision. Um, but the world is plagued with it. We, we see it right now. Everybody's yelling. They have opposite opinions about things. They're all yelling at each other. They're practically going to fight with each other. We see it politically and so on. And they don't even understand the art of thoughtful disagreement. If somebody disagrees, that means, that, you know, how do you know that you're not the wrong one? So you have to be able to work yourself through that. If you can do that with open-mindedness, you can learn a lot and get a lot better. That's the key, I think. Yeah, I love that. And um, you talk about, uh, you talk to me about this quote by Mother Teresa, I can do things you cannot. You can do things I cannot. Together we can do great things. That's it. Yeah, no, I, I share this similar philosophy that it's not, often not, what when it comes to a problem, but who? who? Who has done it before? Who can we go out and listen to? How do we go and bring in a consultant that has perhaps done it? How can we bring in that knowledge? Um, so I think that's really smart and I love that way of problem solving. Um, so I'd love to switch gears a little bit, Ray, and talk about burnout. Talk about productivity, talk about burnout because um, you're somebody that has achieved incredible success in your life. And, you know, the amount of pressure that you, you would have been under, how, how do you manage that? Or how have you managed that? Um, like, you know, like managing like hundreds of billions of dollars of capital um, of other people's money. Like this is, this is not an easy job. How have you dealt with burnout or pressure and handled that? Well, a couple of things. Um, I've meditated since I was um, about 18 or 19. Meditation uh, has the effect of giving one uh, a greater level of equanimity, reduces stress. Um, it also helps creativity because it brings you into the subconscious mind, which is where creativity bubbles up from. Uh, so meditation is part of it excitement for the adventure is another part of it. You know, um, I love what I do. And I know that uh, being wrong and being knocked back is part of it. There was a point in my life when it looked like it looked as follows. It was like I was sitting on one side of a jungle and I knew uh, that to have a, the greatest life possible, I had to take risk. But I, you know, oh my God, that risk can kill me. It, it banged me around. Uh, and so it's like crossing a jungle. Supposing you know that uh, in order to have the greatest life possible, you have to cross a jungle to get on the other side. And in that jungle, there are all sorts of things that can kill you and harm you and so on. Or do you want to stay on the one side and stay safe and have a safe, boring life? And I, um, I couldn't have the safe, boring life. I'd rather have the taste for the adventure. And then I learned how to do that by doing it. And the key to doing it well is to have others who are with me, who want to go on the same journey to make that great success happen, who can see what I can't see and that we all take care of each other while we're crossing that jungle. And we encounter those things along the way. Um, I, and in fact, I, fell in love with it so much, I didn't want to get to the other side and 
have, I want to stay in the jungle and with the people doing that. So a lot of that is um, passion for that, a little bit of a sense of adventure. I don't mind getting um, banged around a little bit on part of the process of getting better. You know, different people have different personalities. But once I took that attitude and then knew how to control my risk and, and deal with other people in the way that I'm describing, um, you know, then it then it worked out well. Sure, there are stressful moments. The question is, how do you deal with stressful moments? If you avoid stress, you will still have stress. It's like the exercise thing. If you don't get enough strength, then the least stressful things will be stressful for you. So you might as well build up your muscle and, you know, and do that and get stronger and, um, and then meditate. And then I accept life as it is. The serenity prayer uh, is, um, is probably the best, best advice. The serenity prayer is, you know, God give me the serenity to accept the things I can't control um, and give me the courage to control the things I can control and give me the wisdom to tell the difference. And so acceptance is part of that too. Mm, I see. And have you ever experienced burnout where you just... Yeah, but um, through, my med- through my meditation or then um, taking um, a conscious effort to walk, be in nature. Nature has a real big effect, beneficial effect for me, changing my attentions um, and so on. I've uh, recovered. It's, it's, um, it's like burnout is like, like exhaustion. You know, you're climbing and you do that and then take a rest and whatever you need, refresh, then, you know, then come back. That's that's what's worked for me. Meditation, again, I would say has helped a lot. Transcendental, right? That's what I do, yeah. It's fabulous. Awesome. What about productivity? I'm curious around how to be an effective CEO. Yeah, so let me uh, jump in there because I don't know that I fully answered your last question, which is related to productivity. Most people see there's a trade-off. They don't have enough time and they can't handle everything. And so they figure they have choices. Uh, the classic is work-life balance um, and so on. So they, ha- they feel they have to make choices. And, they, and of course, uh, to some extent, they do. What they haven't learned out uh, about is how to get the most out of an hour or how to get the most out of productivity, as you're talking about it. Um, what I've found is um, an, an ability to accomplish a huge amount per hour, per day, per week, in a in a really joyous, uh, thrilling way. And because of that capacity to get much more out of an hour or a week, I'm able to cram more life into life. So I'm not. I don't have to say no to as many things. Um, so in the book principles, I described a number of techniques. I'm not going to be able to go through them all now. But as I pull myself up, you know, you get a, you get a few more dollars, you can bring in uh, the best people. Like you said, I have an expression, the who is more important than the what. The who you bring in. Um, and if you bring in the right people who are partners on the mission with you, and are capable, and so on, who you learn to coordinate with and trust, or they help you, then you can get a lot more leverage. 
If you use certain tools and work habits, you can get so much more out of it an hour. So I, um, like I uh, have, oh, I suppose probably 25 or so direct reports who are really, now I've built myself up to this, um, who are really, really talented. And I might spend an hour with them and then they will go off and spend, do things for 50 hours and they can do things in a way that I like and trust. And then they come back and we touch base and we move on from there. So the capacity to make more out of an hour, which is your productivity you're asking about, there's a great uh, orders of magnitude. In other words, you can, you can increase your productivity 10 times. Uh, and if you increase your productivity 10 times, wow, what a payoff that is. 25 direct reports is a lot. Well, I know how to do that. Well, I got, you know, you go from, you know, three to five to a dozen, you know, and, but, uh, you know, I, I, I know how to do it. I'm, I got, I've got a lot going in a lot of different areas. Oh, right. I'm sure you do. So um, let's switch gears and talk about your new announcement. You've got something exciting to share. Which one, the, the ocean announcement or the the announcement about making um, the tools available or? No, um, you you stepping down. Oh, okay. Well, what I've done is, uh, yeah, because there's so many different things. Um, I, uh, you know, so I started Bridgewater and uh, 46 years ago. So there's an arc here that your folks are going to go through. They will, st- they're in the early stages. They start it up, they get it to a certain level. Then they've got to uh, build it. Uh, uh, either that or you flip it. But, you know, let's say you build it because it's your passion. It's a whole different mode. And how do you build it from a few to many and maintain that culture and so on? And then I've done that and I, and I created this community of fabulous people who are partners for many of them, lifelong partners. My closest partners have been with me for one of them 26 years, one of them 36 years, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, but also many of them, many of them. You build that and then it's like it's like a family. You know, there are three stages in life. The first stage in life is when you're being raised by others and you're learning, you go to school. Second stage in life, which is totally different than the first, is that you are in, you work. And increasingly, people are dependent on you, the people you work with, maybe your family, and so on. And so you're in that second stage. And, um, and then you go to a third stage. So um, I'm, I'm transitioned to my third stage. The third stage is almost exactly the opposite of the second stage, which is almost exactly the opposite of the first stage. The second, the second stage, I'm maybe throwing you off here, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. First stage, you're dependent on others. You largely are on guidance. Second stage, you're free. You can, you can go anywhere in the world, work any place you want, any job you want. You're not going to be guided. You have to make choices, and it's through those experiences. And you take on responsibilities of taking care of others and so on. Third stage, you're totally free of the obligations. And there's a natural thing that happens in that stage when you want people, you want the people you care about to be successful without you. If you're running the company, you create a company, it's like an extended family. I want those people to be successful without me. It's like raising your kids. And if your kids are, you know, 40, what do you want for them to be successful without you? 
And so it's that stage that I have transcended I'm, I'm, that Bridgewater 46 years ago, I founded it and it's run by others. And I'm now a mentor. I, I still play the markets. I still do that. I'm chairman, but, I'll, but I want to pass that along. And I'm looking at that and I'm watching beauty happen. And it's like watching um, your family do great together. And that is joyous. That's the arc that I've had to be able to pass along uh, a great company uh, that's been around, wow, 46 years. Okay, so we're almost 50 years, you know, and I expect it'll be bound more than another 50 years. Yes, it's very joyous. And so when I look at your startup folks, there is an arc and that's a terrific arc. And you can make what you like out of it. But when you have those meaningful work and meaningful relationships together, and you could see that. So it's not just commercial because the greatest rewards in life are not money. What I mean by that money, of course, is great, but it has no intrinsic value. It's going to be something that you're going to, you have to buy in order to make it value. So you have to look beyond money and you have to say, what is it that I want? And I would say that meaningful relationships, uh, particularly uh, if you're on the mission together, is something really terrific. So anyway, that's been my arc and that I'm very excited about that and excited about a lot of other things too. Yeah, no, fascinating. Um, so I'm curious as well, uh, right now, um, you know, you're, you're at the, in the Hero's Journey by Joseph Campbell, you're, you're in the stage of your journey where you're giving back. And uh, what, what's exciting for you at the moment that you're working on? Yeah, a few things. Like I was telling you, I didn't have much and I do think struggling well is good. And I don't want my kids to be spoiled and so on. And I see a world where there are a lot of uh, unfair people do not have a fair opportunity. They don't have fair health care. They don't have fair things. My wife and I do it for uh, education in the worst areas. I do microfinance to help them get loans. We do uh, uh, a health care uh, justice system. I set up at New York Presbyterian Hospital. I'm lucky to be able to take resources, financial resources, and put it into these things that I'm excited about philanthropically. I'm excited about ocean exploration. I think ocean exploration, the deepest spot in the ocean is about equivalent to the highest uh, peak outside the ocean on land, except the ocean accounts for two thirds of the world's surface, 72% to be exact. So the world underneath the ocean surface is more than twice as large as all continents combined. And it's more interesting. It's another world that's been totally unexplored and it's more valuable to our existence. And I'm very, very excited about that. So I've created Ocean X. We have a, a ship, Ocean Explorer, um, that is a research ship that uh, scientists, uh, explorers use. And, we, and on it has media platform. We've discovered over the last 10 years amazing things, the giant squid, all sorts of very good things. And we're now doing um, supporting the ocean explorers together with media. We're going to have it um, on um, National Geographic and Disney that will show like Jacques Cousteau will show this exploration going on. And we support it in 
museums and so on. So I'm excited about that. Um, I'm excited about uh, that. I'm excited about my family. You know, I, all of that, my grandkids and, and, you know, and all of that going through, uh, you know, those challenges. And I'm excited about that. So I'm excited about a lot. The world is an interesting, challenging place. So there's a lot to be excited about. Yeah, I love it. And I'm curious, just switching gears, we have to work towards wrapping up. I won't take up too much of your time. You've been so generous. Um, I'm curious around just like the current times with uh, Reddit and, uh, you know, trading and, and Robin Hood. What's your take with like everything going on there? I think it's great. I, I, I think it's really great. Um, they're a lot like me when I was young. You, you know, give me a little bit of money, get, let me go in there and play. And then uh, being, you know, the, uh, uh, the young new generation who upturns the old establishment, uh, the learning that comes from that uh, is, is, is great. So, um, you know, uh, I'd, be there, I'd be there with them. I think it's great. Love it. Awesome. Well, look, um, work towards wrapping up. Two last questions. First question is, there anything that I haven't asked you that you wanted me to ask you or any, anything you'd like to share, final words of wisdom for our audience of early stage startup founders? Yeah, as far as the biggest things going on, I started to see these emerge starting in 2008 and then with uh, um, populism and, and the election of Donald Trump and so on. There are three main forces. Um, that are going on now that have not existed in our lifetimes before, but have existed in the 30s. And you could see them have an effect. First, there's um, the creation of a lot of debt and the printing of money to finance that debt that has an effect on putting a lot of liquidity in the markets, um, having people buy financial assets and devaluing uh, the value of money. That is one. The second is uh, the gaps, the gaps in wealth, opportunity, and politics that have us at each other's throats um, at, in, in a conflict. Any of those measures, I, I measure the wealth gap, uh, I measure the values gap, but I measure the um, political gaps. They're all the largest since the 1930s, a risky period. And the third is the rise of a great power uh, to challenge an existing great power um, like Germany and Japan did in World War II. China is now challenging the United States and the world order. That creates a, a very risky environment in which you, one has to be uh, skillful. Our countries, the leaders of our country have got to do uh, you know, two things really. We have to be united more. We have to find out in a skillful and united way how we get our act together, how we do sound finances, and we are productive, and we are not doing each other damage. And that is the biggest issue of our time. So um, how that'll be dealt with. I've studied um, these rises and declines of empires and reserve currencies uh, since uh, last five, over the last 500 years, and the patterns are all the same. If you're 
listeners are interested, um, they can see that on LinkedIn. I, I, I wrote everything that I'm seeing there on LinkedIn. And I think it, um, it helps people because a lot of the things that we experience happened many, many times in history. They just didn't happen in our lifetimes. And that is because there's a cycle. And this cycle, like a long-term debt cycle and the size cycle of a rise and a decline of an empire, they all take an, a lifetime or so in order to run that course. And um, we don't see it until we experience it, but, we, but in the history. So I would make, I'd like to pass along to your viewers the understanding of that, because that will be very important in their lifetimes, I believe. And they can get that again on LinkedIn. Yeah, no, I've read some of your notes there. It's incredible. Um, thank you so much, Ray. Um, so one last question, where's the best place people can find out more about yourself and your work? We've, we've obviously got principles, principles.com. People can go and grab a copy of your book on any major bookstore, Amazon, incredible book. You have to read it. I cannot recommend it enough, but where else can people go? Well, principles.com or principles in action is a free app that actually has the book on it. It has all the other books on it, has everything on it. Actually also have videos of these principles in action. It's rated 4.9 people who go to it, love it. So either uh, principles.com or principles in action as an app. Uh, I think those would be the best places. Amazing. Well, Ray, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for being so generous, so humble and so giving uh, with all of your wisdom and everything that you've learned and sharing your experiences with us. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. I uh, wish you an incredible day. Well, it's a, it's, it's a joy and thank you for helping me do it. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.